Welcome to Dragon Talk, everybody! Yay! Very Woo! excited. Very excited. For the official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. That's right. That's right. It's me, Greg Tito. And it's me, Shelly Mazenoble. Hi, Shelly. Hi! How are you doing? I don't feel like we've heard a lot about you recently. Oh, oh well, I'm slouching in my seat right now. Me too. Yeah, enjoying this beautiful day, just, you know, trying to get better at second grade math. Um, I threw his math book and a pencil on the floor today and said, I'm not doing this. Um, Two days ago, I wrote a paragraph about polar bears because he refused to do it, and I just really needed this assignment to get done. And um, today, he... um, we're talking lied. about your son Quinn, right? Quinn, That's, yeah. He, yeah, he lied. About me. He, he lied to his reading teacher and said that he had connectivity issues. Um, and I found him just lying in our bed watching YouTube. That is the like so. that is Ferris Bueller's Day Off <laughs> level of uh, amazingness. There. Um, sometimes we do have connectivity issues. Today was not one of those days, uh, and I didn't know that he had just spread this rumor and like disconnected himself. <laughs> Uh, until his teacher emailed and said, "Sorry about Quinn's connectivity issues. Here's the assignment he missed." It's like he's literally right wow. here, and we're wow. online. I am reading your email on the Wi-Fi that is not Having disconnected right issues. now. So, Oosh. yeah. And then he, when I called him out, and he just stared at me with these big eyes. He was like, "I, I thought I did have connectivity issues." Wow. Whatever, dude. That's one of those things when you're that age where you're just like, I don't, no one will know that I've done this thing. Right. Uh, you know, it's like that idea of like, um, you know, if you don't see it, it doesn't exist, right? So, like, especially when they're younger, I used to find uh, food, like scraps, like between their mattresses. And they're oh. just like, oh, if I just put it there, no one will ever know. And I won't get in trouble for eating in my room or in bed or anything like that. And, oh. uh, and then, of course, it gets found and they're like, Oh, I had no idea problem. that if I just remove this from sight, that people will one day be able to see it <laughs> in the future. Right? Yes, that it would ever come back to haunt me. Yeah, uh, it is like days like these last couple of days when it, it just makes me wonder how are these kids going to go back into a real classroom? Yeah. Because you, they're just their attention span. They get a lot of breaks here and there um, that they're not. They're not going to have at school. They don't have someone feeding them snacks all day. You can't just like leave math and go poop for 20 minutes. I don't think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my daughter definitely used to do that in school. (laughs) She'd be like, I'm going to go use the bathroom. And then she would just go walk around and talk to everybody in the school until she got some some, some realizations that I was also not okay. What are you going to do in class? Like you're just going to like put your head down on the table and tell your teacher... Connectivity issues. I'm just not going to pay attention for the next 20 minutes. You know, in some ways, it's actually, I think, uh, been, you know, obviously it's hard for for some kids and some teachers in some situations, but at least uh, for the specific personalities that my kids have, like having that freedom of like, oh, I'm going to do the class in uh, this room today or, you know, be able to sit on this couch and, you know, still be able to have the same experience, but it's in a different environment has actually kind of helped keep them more engaged. And I could only imagine, like, yeah, you're right. Like, once they go back to, like, oh, you must sit in your school desk and have your desk be neat and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And, like, you know, as a kid who had 
ADD tendencies when I was growing up, like having that kind of structure, I, I didn't like, I didn't appreciate. And so having this freedom and having it being taken away, also it's going to be a strange adjustment. You're totally right. It's not dissimilar from, uh, you know, going from only playing convention type play of Dungeons and Dragons and then going to the home, you know, your home game or vice versa, you know. Or playing in person and going virtual exactly. and then back again, hopefully soon. Right? So yeah. uh, even us, uh, us D&D players are having that same kind of thought well, right now. And we're going to have a hard time adjusting to life back in an office too. I mean, we all say we want to get there, you know, but I it's going to be hard to like wear shoes all day. Pants. Pants. That's going to be a real issue. Exactly. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm like, you know, I don't know if, uh, I mean, there's obvious benefits of being in an office and being next to people you're working with, sure. But there's also... Mm-hmm. You know some some disadvantages there too. So I'm, absolutely, who knows? Maybe we'll just never work in the office again, and I can now do Dragon Talk from space or Mars well, in I mean, the future. We're, you know, it was it's we're we're officially in the one year that this yeah. a year ago now is when we first came home. We were doing our two weeks. Remember, it was like supposed to just be two weeks. Yeah, work from home, and we had got all the equipment set up so that we could record Dragon Talk. And I remember thinking. This seems like a very big deal for two weeks. Like maybe we just take a week off or something. You know, like I don't know. Poor Ryan was trying to help me set up microphones and cables, and I was such a dummy, and I just couldn't figure it out. And I guess was thinking, it's only two weeks. Why are we making this such a big deal? It was not two weeks, Shelley, as it turned out. (laughs) <laughs> I'd like to go bloop, 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 rewind and tell Shelly, you need to figure out how to hook up that damn microphone because <laughs> you're not going back to the office. It's we're going to be here in a year. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't, we're, we're not, we're all about lifting other people up. And so we don't always pat ourselves on the back, Shelly and, and, and Ryan and, and as well. But I think we only skipped one week of recording we Dragon Talk. Didn't I don't even just, know if we did. I feel like maybe we just did one. If not, that's kind of amazing that we kept production of this going, shifted that way, and we never had any of that uh, going on. So very uh, you know, uh, thankful that we were able to make that transition. And uh, kudos to you, Shelly. Kudos to you, Greg. Because it, if it were up to me, I probably would have been like, eh, we'll just wait until we go back. It was probably you that was like, no, no, let's just keep doing this. And... Kudos to Ryan for his patience and Pelham for buying a bunch of equipment because I think he was the one that was having That's it all true. sent to our house. Yeah. And good point. I'm I didn't even realize it was it's a year ago as we we're recording this. Right now, uh, yeah. That that's all happening. Um, I remember because I didn't feel celebratory about my five year uh, anniversary of working at oh. Wizards because that was all happening at the same time. So this is my oh, sixth year. This is your was sixth yesterday. Year. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Thanks. You've only been here 17 years at this point, right? Just a few. <laughs> your, your eyes went wide because you're like, no, people can do math now. You just screwed everything up. <laughs> I think I was just talking to someone, someone who is new um, on our team, and uh, and I felt weird saying like how long I've been at Wizards because it's just I feel like I'm too young to have been somewhere for so long. Yeah, and then I was explaining well. I really like my job, though. It's very hard to think about going somewhere else when when you're happy doing what you're doing. And I can't imagine leaving something like that's as creative as Dungeons and Dragons. Like 
I mean, I get to be the brand manager for Dungeons and Dragons. And so cool. the work that we do every day and the people that we get to work with every day. And I always, I'm telling you, I always, this will probably even come up in one of the the chapters we write about in our upcoming Dragon Talk book. But I always think about what you said in an interview, and I can't remember who we were talking to, but I'm sure it's recorded. And you said it. Oh, now I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase, but like you like we know that the work that we do does matter, mm-hmm. and it really does impact people's lives in a positive way, and it doesn't like feel like work when you think of it that way like we really feel like it's important and there's not you know we're not doctors and and nurses and you know frontline workers out there but but there are people in the past year that that have relied on Dungeons and Dragons to help them find some some peace and some comfort and in some some fun in an otherwise pretty dark year but even before that like we know that people do use D&D in very positive ways, and and that's why I love it. Also, where where do you want me to go, people? I like it here, <laughs> right? I, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Yeah, like five. Enjoy your time. I mean, I've always respected the uh, the, the 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 people who found their niche or found their 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 company that they enjoy, and and why not stick with it, right? It's like it's like having a a veteran from a sports team that sticks with that same sports team the whole time, and 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 keeps it going. And you know, you're basically like the. Uh, uh, Larry Bird of uh, <laughs> Wizards of the Coast, where you've been this constant the whole entire time, has been keeping the team together. So we appreciate that. Yes, I am. I am Larry Bird. You <laughs> because you can fly, you can use your wings yeah, to lift I us lift all up. up. Yes, <laughs> and we get to talk to two of our, uh, you know, most entertaining uh, co-workers with Chris yes. Lindsay and Chris Perkins today on Dragon Talk to talk about. Candlekeep Mysteries and how it is now out there. And even that, this book is a testament to what it's like to bring everyone together from uh, the community as well as from the, you know, the, the D&D design uh, fields yes. um, to come together for a, a collaboration uh, in so, Candlekeep yeah. Mysteries for these short adventures. Talk about lifting people up. Chris Perkins, lead designer, and reaches out to you and says, hey, do you want to contribute? Mm-hmm. to an official Dungeons and Dragons product. And I imagine that it was probably um, a very educational experience to get to work with someone like Chris who has so many years of experience writing adventures and editing and writing stories and just being awesome to have him be the one that's actually working with you and helping you hone your craft. Yeah, right. All with the, you know, there, there might be uh, feedback and changes and things that you might uh, want to work on going forward, but what a great teacher to mm-hmm. be able to point that out. Uh, and then, of course, having Chris Lindsay being there as uh, the uh, contributor around the candle keep section of the book, as well as just a, you know amazing playtester and project uh, 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 helper uh, with this one, you know, Great stuff yep. all around. So can't wait to have that interview. You'll learn more about the making of Dungeons and Dragons books probably than you have in, in a lot of other interviews uh, from from the mouths of the people who make it. So that's one of the fun things that we love to do about Dragon Talk, and I'm so glad you got that coming here for Candlekeep Mysteries. I also want to highlight Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Yeah, now the Candlekeep Mysteries is out of the door. Uh, it's available everywhere uh, where you find wonderful books uh looking forward to you know some some creeptastic stories being told <laughs> using van richten's guide to ravenloft that comes out on may 18th i 
am very excited to try. You this look out. it <laughs> and sound excited as I, well. I this is my creepy excited voice. Oh. Um, Quinn just created a new character called Creepy Connie. Oh, um, from Bunked. Yes. Oh uh, no, from Jesse. She's from something. Yeah, she's from one of their one of those shows. Um, and he, I feel like maybe maybe I'll have to do a little DMing for him <gasps> so Creepy Connie can. Oh my gosh, Fiona play would love to do that. She loves the Creepy Connie. Literally, those are the episodes that get uh, replayed the most in my house. Are the Creepy Connie episodes? Creepy Connie's. So, uh, I maybe we should talk to Wes. Like maybe, yeah, he can. There's some bonus content there. I don't oh, know. Yeah, like stat up, stat up some stat creepy. Stat up con- some creepy. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, we're calling back some old school, like late '90s Disney shows Disney that our shows. kids have gotten into. Yeah, or maybe early 2000s. They hold up. He's yeah. literally he's plowing through all of these shows. So um, I think we're on Girl Meets World right now. Oh my. So funny. We have like parallel experiences uh, <laughs> happening in in households. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah. Well, that is all coming. We'll be talking a lot more about Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft in the weeks and months to come. But pencil in May eighteenth for all of your needs on the creep factor. <laughs> your horror needs. Horror. Horror. <laughs> Got to en- enunciate that one. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> Scary. That's Scary. much easier. Yep. Uh, so we have a random character generator. We are going to uh, throw at you here, me and Brandy, doing some fun stuff, and then we'll get to our interview with the Chris's, Chris Lindsay oh. and Chris Perkins. Woohoo! to another random character generator. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Brandy Camel. Hi, Brandy. Hi, Greg. Very excited to hang out with you today and randomize a character using D&D Beyond's amazing character builder. Uh, they've got this great tool which lets you just uh, choose a random character from uh, the algorithm, and what we'll do is look at what gets spit out and uh, try to assign a background and a character story to these uh, numbers and choices made here. They're not always optimal, uh, and that's some of what makes this really fun, is to uh, figure out why those things occur and uh, hopefully end up with a fleshed-out NPC or character that you can use in your game. It's always a ton of fun to, to go through this mental exercise, both, the, both from the player perspective and as a GM, so... Yeah, actually, you're right. This is this is like a little bit like a a, a GM uh, a practice tool, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just for warm up even. Uh, so here we've got Ness Yasa, Ness Yasa, a cobalt sorcerer. I love them already. Exactly. <laughs> uh, again, a uh, low strength, high dexterity uh, Ooh, with a wow. sixteen. Uh, and then middle of the road uh, after that, 11, 11, 11 with con and, and wisdom and a little bit of a higher charisma with a 14 and a plus two there. So this is a, uh, a, a persuasive sorcerer, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that charisma is key just uh, as a sorcerer in general, but like having that high dex is, is really interesting. Um, it's, it's very common for a kobold. They tend to be very, very dexy, very finessey. So... Yeah, um, 
And uh, as far as uh, skills go, trained in Arcana Athletics, which is uh, a strange choice for a kobold, as well as with the negative one modifier. Uh, Deception, which works out really well because of the higher charisma. And Religion. Hmm. That's an interesting choice. Yeah, you don't usually have a sorcerer that's uh, you know into into the the deities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, here's some interesting thing as far as uh, oh, and this must come from a background. Uh, mm-hmm. They have uh, tools proficiency in water vehicles. That is interesting. So yeah. this is this is a water bound kobold. Yeah, and their background is smuggler. Ness Yasa is a smuggler. Excellent. Yeah, uh, that uh, that high deception is going to come into play definitely with that uh, that smuggling background. Right, that means that you uh, are acquainted with a whole bunch of uh, smugglers, and you'll be able to help out and get a safe house if you're interested uh, at most ports, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah, uh, they are an aberrant mind sorceress. Oh, sorcerer. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that is one of our newer ones, I believe. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is from Tasha's, right? Yeah, this is from Tasha's. So this is the aberrant mind kind of gets you down the the path of the strange beyond, the things beyond the stars. Um, it, it also kind of just falls in line with other aberrations, things like illithids or um, aboliths or things of that nature. So. Yeah, and it allows access to psionic spells. Mm-hmm. Which Those is, are always fun. Yeah, it's really fun. And uh, they also have the ability of telepathic speech. Ooh, with, that's uh, especially awesome. Yeah. Gosh, how could a smuggler benefit from that? I mean, that's basically like the, <laughs> these aren't the droids you're looking for uh, yep. type of thing going on there. Definitely. Well, this is fantastic. I can speak to each other while the two of you are within a number of miles equal to your charisma modifier. That's incredible. Wow. Right. And so the charisma modifier is two. So two, two miles away, you can psionically speak using the uh, feature from the Aberrant Mind Sorcerer. Very, very interesting how that will manifest. We'll still figure it out. But man. And then the spells chosen, uh, always important for a spellcaster like this. Definitely. Lots of cantrips, control flames, mage hand, mind sliver is the uh, psionic uh, at will, mm-hmm. poison spray, thunderclap, and then uh, arms of Hadar, dissonant whispers, some sleep, and Natasha's caustic brew. Fantastic. We got some yeah. second level spells to look at too. Yeah. Calm emotions, crown of madness, detect thoughts, gust of wind. So I'm sensing uh, okay. a real connection with these kind of psionic mental uh, powers with these spells as well as, you know, some good utility ones like a, a Gust of Wind and mm-hmm. uh, Mage Hand. Yeah, there's some, uh, there's some really good battlefield control going on here, um, which is, you know, that's always handy to have in a party. It's also wonderful to throw at your players. So <laughs> That is awesome. Oh man, you know what's what's really funny is that I actually think this character would fit right in to Baldur's Gate 3 because mm. of that aberrant mind background. This could totally be a Tadpole character. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I didn't even think about that, but that makes a lot of sense. 
they also have uh, some meta magic uh, oh, abilities yeah. here with twin spell and extended spell being able to be used, mm-hmm. which is always great. And then uh, all the traits they get from being a kobold. Yeah. Really does. Oh, man. So being able to, to grovel and cower and beg and the pack <laughs> tactics, that's going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Since a, an al- you know, kobold's allies is just basically anybody in your party. So mm-hmm. having an attack roll, uh, I'm sorry, having advantage on all attack rolls with, with pack tactics is huge, especially if some of the spells uh, use attack rolls, which mm-hmm. looks like most of them do here. Yeah, I think I think most of the ones that we have here use attack rolls. Yeah. Uh, actually, no. I guess maybe they don't. Well, maybe not. Yeah, a lot of them are. Uh, um, oh no, most of them are saves. Saves. So. Yeah. Okay. So maybe maybe, maybe not getting as much use out of that, but. Poison spray might be the only one, but is that? Nope, that's also a con that's saving also throw. Also a save. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe they'll they'll start learning some new spells where they can take advantage of that. <laughs> So yeah, what do you what do you where are you thinking about for uh, the kobold Nessiasa and how they developed uh, the smuggler background? Yeah, Gosh, is it like a thinking, bunch of kobolds, or do you think it was you know kind of a, a group with a whole bunch of different humanoids? I've I've got one of two that that I've got in mind already for this. So um, you can either go it, the. The training in religion really stood out to me uh, mm. right away. So that makes me wonder: is this um, is is this kobold a member of a cult? Were they recruited because of their aberrant mind, because of their you know wildly powerful magics that were springing up? Um, are they maybe a um, follower of Tiamat, or maybe a uh, or maybe someone who was a follower of Tiamat that you know they've got this aberrant influence now and maybe got kicked out of their cults as a result you know um yeah. usually usually the aberrant mind of stuff tends to make you an outsider or an outcast so that, yeah that could be something that uh um that might be a fun hook to play with yeah dragon kin uh like kobolds uh don't necessarily play well with mind flayers and aberrants uh aberrations like that so perhaps uh i like that them being outcast from their group um, Mm -hmm. uh, at a young age and then having to make ends meet in the world uh, allow, you know, force them to kind of become a smuggler uh, and use their psionic abilities in a fight, but also just to uh, make ends meet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that high deception, you know, this, they probably hide a lot of their abilities, to be honest, Uh, at least amongst uh, people that maybe they don't trust at first, right? Oh, that's a cool idea. So maybe they have all these abilities, but they, uh, but but Nesyasa keeps them secret. Yeah. Even from fellow smugglers. Could could totally maybe maybe uh, she's really. Is, are we going with she for this? Nesyasa character? feels very feminine to me. But it does. You know, it what feels do you like think? a very feminine name to me. I think that's that's the direction to go but yeah. i think she maybe maybe she's slowly working her way up through the smugglers and with through some like subtle influences here and there oh i see right so they, they I, th- I think that's a great idea so i love that idea that that, that uh Nessiasa does not show her abilities uh amongst her uh fellow smugglers and is slowly quietly using them almost like a 
like an Among Us player or something like that to, <laughs> yeah. to only use it when no one else can know what's happening. And so maybe there's been a few deaths of people uh, in her smuggling crew that mm-hmm. has done her wrong or had gotten in her way, uh, and uh, that's allowed her to to gain more uh, confidence from the leader. I'm really cracking up at the Among Us reference because, like, the Abert mind does tend to be that, like, tentacle monster inspired <laughs> so i'm just i'm just imagining some other smuggler coming you know coming down into the underground docks there's just half a body laying there yeah <laughs> oh no she vented <laughs> this yasa is sus oh man yeah that totally works uh cool uh so what do you think Nessiasa looks like uh, what is their appearance Oh, that's a great question. So um, I always like to think with kobolds, uh, what is the dragonkin that they're most related to, right? Mm. Um, and I'm going to go out on a stretch here just because there's, uh, based on the spells that she's manifested as a sorcerer, there's a little bit of poison, there's a little bit of acid. Maybe we go with a, a green or black dragon heritage. That makes sense. Yeah, especially with the waterways, I think a, a black dragon makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe this is kind of a you know a black scaled kobold, right? Um, what type of uh, adornments would you would you think she would have? Oh man, well, let's see. If you're a smuggler who's getting your way, <laughs> is is she the kind that would like adorn adorn herself with uh, like jewels or or gold that she's lifted from places, mm. or you know, is she is she skimming off the top a little bit here or there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or or is she just uh, wearing robes and, uh, you know, is it just function? Yep. What do you think? Oh, let's see. Does she seem like a more functional person? Well, she, you know, she does have that training at athletics for what it's worth. So she, oh, she yeah. might kind of dress a little bit more conservatively in that regard. Right, like a, more like a black widow, right? Like having, having the ability to, to move and, and, and uh, get into a fight quickly, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, some someone who can at least you know um, keep their stuff close to their person. They're they're not going to worry about stuff getting snagged if they're on the run suddenly or or anything of that nature. But but I do think I like to think she indulges a little bit. Like she's got like that one that one glorious piece she keeps on her. Like that's her prize. Nice. What do you think? Is a, a nose ring? Uh, is it a, a, a pendant or a That could a brooch? be cool. I've re- I like the idea of a super extravagant nose ring. That yeah. just tickles me for whatever reason. <laughs> me too. Yeah. All right. So she uh, is, uh, you know, wearing a lot of black clothes, maybe black leathers over her scales uh, as much as possible. But the one uh, gaudy thing is uh, an ostentatious... <laughs> is it bejeweled? Is it, is it gold? I think gold and black will look, would look good. Yeah, good gold, together. gold and black stands out to me. Maybe, maybe like a dash. Like there's a there's a ruby inlay or something real fancy on it. That's cool. I like that. All right, and then uh, what does Nesyasa sound like? What is she? What is her voice? What would what would she do as far as trying to deceive folks? Oh man, so so we know that she's trying to be decep- deceptive. She's not really trying to. Uh, draw attention to herself. So maybe she's a little bit more soft-spoken and you really want to believe her. She's, you know, she's somebody that, I'm on the level with you. I'm somebody that you can trust. You know, you can trust your goods with me. I'll get them to where they need to go. 
I like that. Ooh, yeah. I immediately uh, was transported to uh, a dock <laughs> where she was trying to convince me to to go along with what her plan was. That's great. I like that a lot. <laughs> All right. All right, cool. So did, one question here. Did you think she controls or doesn't show her uh, aberrant mind abilities or does she hide all of her sorcerer spells and skills? I think she hides her aberrant abilities because those are the ones that kind of freak people out. I think, you know, magic's frequent enough that, all right, you know, it's you're a sorcerer. You're somebody to be respected. You're, you're a magic user. But the, the aberrant mind stuff is where, that's where it gets weird. That's the kind of stuff that you use for, like, intimidating people or really putting them in line when they cross your path. That makes sense. Yeah, so she's, she's okay with using, you know, gust of winds and maybe even a dissonant whispers now and then, but she does not lean too really hard into the, the, the grossness of the arms of Hadar or, uh, you know, some of the mind sliver stuff unless she knows that she can defeat this enemy uh, in a way that won't be witnessed by other people. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that suits her pretty well. I like it. Okay. So, uh, Nesyasa is a kobold, uh, black-scaled, who was in a enclave that uh, devoted themselves to Tiamat uh, and, you know, more, uh, more typical dragon deities. But when she was born, she uh, was somehow touched by an aberrant mind, and she began to exhibit... Um, Things at a young age when she was hatched uh, to her uh, uh, mates that were shunned. And she eventually was exposed and put out from her crash and uh, had to make her way on her own. Uh, luckily, she ha- was uh, you know, pretty dexterous. She was able to convince people using her uh, higher charisma uh, that she had use. She also had a, a lot of abilities uh, innately from being a sorcerer, uh, and she learned quite early to hide some of the more disturbing uh, tentacle alien-like uh, exhi- exhibitions uh, from her magic and uh, deceive those around her to make her feel just like a normal run-of-the-mill kobold who fell in with a group of smugglers. Uh, so she definitely is outside of society. She, you know, maybe... maybe uh, works in Baldur's Gate uh, and that area a lot, um, but is adept at piloting a watercraft in and out of the city with uh, you know possible contraband of goods and works with a group of smugglers uh, to eke out an existence that way. She is always hiding her uh, aberrant mind, um, uh, you know, manif- manifesting in any way, but she doesn't hide necessarily herself uh, that she is uh, adept at magic uh, and anything that she earns uh, through uh, smuggling, uh, you know, she, she doesn't necessarily show off either, but she does have one nose ring, which um, is the uh, ornament of choice uh, for her, a big gold uh, ring, maybe through the septum, that type of thing with some ruby inlay, uh, as Brandy was saying. And when she... <laughs> Speaks. Uh, she speaks in a very conciliatory tone and feels as if, uh, you know, you're making the best choice by going along with uh, what her smugglers gang is proposing. Absolutely. I think we've got a solid NPC, maybe even like 
minor uh, villain at the beginning of a an early campaign. Yeah, um, but could perhaps be uh, good in a fight uh, and able to be recruited as well. Like I feel like uh, Nessiasa, out of many of the characters we come up with, uh, random character generator could uh, could have a redemption arc. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because she's a little bit on her own, right? She's she's making her own way, and maybe if someone's like, you don't have to hide your aberrant <laughs> nature. Because yeah. I'm also a psionic uh, creature, uh, <laughs> you know that could be uh, really useful. And perhaps, I mean, using the ability to uh, psionically communicate over miles, maybe she she develops a bond uh, with uh, someone in your party. She could be yeah. a really great informant, especially in a city based campaign. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that is great. Um, and she's got a really cool voice that Brandy uh, showed us. <laughs> I don't know if I could find it again on command. It always <laughs> know, takes right. me like a second to get back into it. That's, that, that's <laughs> how you know the uh, really expert voice actors, where they're like, you know, on the drop of a hat, they'll make something up and then they'll be able to go right back to it 10 minutes later. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm amateurish at best. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. But, you know, hey, maybe we'll level up too. Yeah, uh, someday. Thank you so much, Brandy, for coming on and creating Ness Yasa. Uh, always fun uh, to do this fun improv exercise. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Greg. Sweet. And we will put this in the show notes for uh, this podcast episode. And hopefully you can use Ness Yasa in your campaign. And if you do, we'd love to hear about it. So uh, tag me. I'm at Greg Tito on Twitter uh, and uh, Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. And uh, Brandy, how might they uh, ask you to do another rendition of that voice so that they can use it in their campaign? (laughs) Well, the best place to find me is definitely on Twitter at D-A-Y-N-T-E-E. That's at Dainty. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thanks. We'll be back with some more random character generators in future episodes. I love rolling up random characters with Brandy and coming up with some funny stories uh, about where they come from. So fun. So fun, and you have a lot of fun. Do you like Brandy more than me? I like Brandy a lot more for for um, improvising. Well, that's not true. I was going to say for improvising, but I think uh, you're both great. Uh, I like Brandy more than me. <laughs> I do. I think she's great. Um, also, that's not the answer I expected you to give. I didn't really think you would be pensive and think about it. I thought you would just say, no, of course not. <laughs> And you were actually were like, mm, well, in some cases, yes, Brandy definitely is um, superior to I you. will. I will say that question was a little bit like, "What do you? Th- how do you think this dress looks on me? Right. Was literally right. what I felt. I was like, there's mm-hmm. no right answer. It, and there w- absolutely was not. There yes. definitely is no right answer. So that's why I was immediately like, mm, I gotta go to the bathroom. Brandy is great and I love her. It so is. It is. It's actually fine if you like her better than me. <laughs> Huh? Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's talk. Let's let's ask uh, uh, the the Chris's. Uh, (laughs) They like better. better? No, that's a terrible question. That's awful. We'll ask all of our guests that question going forward. Which one of us do you like better? (laughs) We're waiting. This is a this is a uh, (laughs) this is a a fan question. You have to answer. No, Jesus. I think we already know the answer to that. (laughs) It's Brandy. It's Ryan. <laughs> it's Ryan. <laughs> or as you like to call him, Rai Rai. 
Rai Rai. Let's welcome Chris Lindsay and Chris Perkins to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! Chris says, I love you, Chris. Oh, oh damn. damn. You have a lot of fans here. That was Puppy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, Perkins? How is Puppy? He's wonderful. He misses you a lot. And it's true. He really does love you. I know. Rare that puppy wasn't shouting out Milo at all. He's not as big of a fan of dogs. Milo's very <laughs> upset because I won't let him jump in my lap right now. Well, why oh. won't you? He's, he's part of this. As he'll stick his nose in my chicken soup. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to eat chicken soup while you do this recording? <laughs> I, I will spare you me eating soup. Let me know it is waiting for me. I'm afraid, it, I'm afraid you might have to heat that up after we're done here. You don't want to oh. see me eat soup. It is not a pretty sight. And uh, you know, um, speaking of dogs today, um, in, in Adventures in Remote Learning, Quinn was sitting with Puppy, and then Puppy decided to get up, shove his butt right in the camera. And I heard his teacher go, oh, Quinn. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and then you could just see like all these little kid faces hysterically laughing, but muted, but like. <laughs> what this class needs is more dog butt. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of part of learning biology. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, no. They'll get to that later, I think, in their schooling. Yeah. But anyway, are there dogs in Candlekeep? None that I'm aware of. I feel like that's the only thing missing from Candlekeep. More dogs. There's no, there's no grass in Candlekeep. There's nowhere for them to, you know, do their, their mm. business. Interesting. Yeah. There must be some magical means for that, but <laughs> we are, of course, excited to talk to you two uh, because Candlekeep Mysteries is out there. Everyone can take a Yay! look at this awesome anthology uh, that you know Chris, uh, Chris Perkins. You were the lead designer for uh, working with so many great uh, contributors from the adventure, and then Chris Lindsay, you uh, contributed to the chapter that's all about Candlekeep itself. Is that right? I did I think more yep. than contributed. Did you? Yeah. Did no, you? I wrote the chapter. Nice. So, yeah, what was that Sorry. like? T- tell us a little bit about uh, Candlekeep's history. We've talked to it a-, a bunch on the podcast here, even done a few lore you should knows on it. But uh, for those of you tune in on this, well, what what should we get excited about uh, learning in Candlekeep Mysteries? Well, uh, when it comes to the actual like Candlekeep itself, um, uh, I think the th- the part I really enjoyed is, uh, I mean basically trying to bring the entire environs inside the keep to life, right? Trying to, you know, introduce the various NPCs in a way that the dungeon master can easily bring them into their game and breathe life into them and have their players interact with the characters in a way that um, shows them that Candlekeep is a, a living, breathing place. It's not just this cold, dark receptacle of knowledge that you drop your book off in a slot and then get a ticket and get let into. Right. So um, uh, one of the most fun things was just taking all of the bits that had come before and kind of weaving them together and in a way that made all the NPCs work. Uh, That was one of the unique challenges was because you had so much old lore to sift through. How did you decide 
what sort of what to focus on? Uh, that's a great question. That's a great <laughs> uh, well, first I decided by, I, I read what, what had immediately come before, which is in Sword Coast Adventures Guide. And then I went back and looked at some of the older uh, entries on, on Candlekeep. Um, and while uh, I'm not a big proponent of the, the Forgotten Realms Wikipedia that they have online, it was a great place to find an entire like bibliography mm. of resources with little bits here and little bits there. And then I could go and get those resources and just peel through them myself and read them directly. Um, but uh, one of the most exciting things though, was when I was trying to differentiate what we were creating now from what came before was going online and looking at like some of the biggest and coolest and diff most different libraries that we have in the really real world and seeing what types of things that they did in their libraries um, to make them interesting and unique and to develop the, the experience that people have when they go into those libraries. And so and the way. kind of getting into that headspace and figuring out, you know, what little bits I might add here and there. And there's no one thing that you could see that would be identified as, oh, this is that library, or this is the other library. Um, uh, I definitely amalgamated that with everything else that I had kind of put together as I was going through it. So that's really cool. Find any earth libraries that had Modrons in them? I did not find any earth libraries with Modrons in them. No, no, but, <laughs> not but yet. there were some that would have easily fit a legion of air elementals into though. <laughs> I want to hear more about that research. Like what, like what sorts of examples did you, I know you said they wouldn't be identifiable in the book, but can you give us some examples of, of libraries uh, of that inspired hand, you? I, I could not, I'd have to go back and, and look, but there were some crazy, crazy libraries with like, shelves that um, just the way they did their shelving and stuff and, and they would find artistic ways to spiral the whole thing as it went up into the, to the rafters and, mm. and then talking about how people would get access to various types of books. I don't, uh, you know, it's been a while since I did that research. So I don't recall what the exact names of those libraries were. I could probably very easily in a couple of minutes go through an online search. And Do your research that, again, please, uh, yes. uh, Mr. Lindsay. <laughs> Show, us. Like yeah. Show us yeah. how you I did just, that research. I'm remembering, yeah, I just I've seen some pictures too of, the, of what you're talking about, that like spiraling. I think it's a bookstore in Japan, if I'm not mistaken, that has like... It might have been. I, I know there was one in, J in Japan and there was one in, in China and their use of space is amazing. And, um, uh, and then there were a couple in Europe as well. Um, so, um, what about the library of Alexandria? Alexandria, did you go there and, and uh, check it out on on Watson's time? Alexandria, no, no, I did not. Go, I didn't <laughs> travel anywhere except for on the interwebs. The internet. I had the power of the internet, you see, and I used it a lot for inspiration. That's awesome. So, yeah, that's very. And cool. actually, it's been a couple of years since you wrote that material, just to give people a glimpse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's I'm, been a while. The time frame we're talking about here. Chris wrapped up his work in 2018, I believe. Yeah. Oh wow! Oh my god! It's yeah, been a so, hot minute. Yeah, uh, Perkins, you. So you. This, this has been a project that's yeah been going on for as, as that long uh, as far and as part of, as the, part of the reason why Chris's work wrapped up so early was. Uh, we wanted to send it to the other writers working on the adventures mm. so that they would know what parts of Candlekeep we're preserving and uh, what's important about the location. And so having Chris's written words 
in hand so that we can just send that off with all the other stuff that we send our freelancers, the templates and everything, was immensely helpful to them, or at least I, I believe it was. I would the, imagine. The fun part was inventing new things for Chris, for Chris to quash. <laughs> okay, so that, that was a question. I, so, Lindsay, Chris Lindsay, when you were you were sifting through all of the, the older documentation about Candlekeep, and then, but you yeah. were also creating new things, mm-hmm. yes? So then what is the process for, because this becomes canon, obviously. Does it go f- before a committee of Chris's, where Chris is like, <laughs> rejected, rejected, approved? Yes, it goes to a committee of one. <laughs> And he's really close by right now. He's really close. Is he right there? He's he's yeah, on the bottom row for me. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so no, not I mean a couple of the ideas got in just fine, and uh, I think my my goal when I did that was just to uh, um, come up with a bunch of what I thought were really cool ideas, and then just barrage him with them, and then he could choose whatever he wanted to put in there because I know that I had overwritten. Uh, a bit so um it wouldn't all make it in but uh, uh i think the, the 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 parts that did are, are really fun and exciting um so and I'm and really another process thing uh, as a lead on a book um i don't stress out about making decisions too early in the process about what to keep and what to cut mm-hmm. uh, there's a point where we take all the word files and we flow them into InDesign, which is the actual program we use for building our books. And it's really at that point when the text is actually on the page and space has been blocked out with art that hard decisions, capital H, capital D, have to be made about what stays and what goes. I don't think some of the decisions were that hard. I think a couple of other things <laughs> got cut. We're, 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 we're cut for good yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. We're cut- <laughs> <laughs> some of them are easier cuts to make than others, for sure. Sure. <laughs> what were some of those more fanciful ideas, if you don't mind just giving yeah. some examples? Uh, I'll give you one. Uh, uh, I had written up a uh, an idea for basically a, a magical form of TED Talks that took place in Candlekeep. Oh. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and it was, I will not lie, it was a huge stretch. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, this is what got cut or that made it in? Got cut, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. It's okay. I will still totally use that in my home game and stuff, but um, uh, the things that got in there, I think, were far more vital to the kinds of stories that we need to tell and that, that everybody will want to access. So, And then Very when cool. you were talking, you mentioned something about NPCs and the Chris Yeah, so Yeah, I'm a big fan of... Of a bunch of the NPCs, in particular, though there is in I, what was his name? There is an ogre with a headband of intellect sitting in the inn, um, and my only goal with that ogre was to basically give him a different book from the book he was studying the last time the player characters met him in his hands for him to discuss with somebody else in Descent into Avernus, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, he he's fun. Uh, and he was, he was an easy, just like, oh yeah, he's, he's still in there and he's still hanging out. And, um, he had this book before, but he's moved on to this other book now. And so we just gave him a new book and rolled on with it. And if we see, if we ever see him again, he'll have a different book. (laughs) 
Hopefully, it's like he's reading a a fantasy series. Like he's he's on book three of the the Chronicles. I want to. I feel like romance novels would be kind of fun as a nice little escape for him. I would like that little Fabio ogre there with the long flowing hair, but the Uh, body of an ogre. I would love that. Giving each of the the master readers names uh, and and personalities uh, based on like you know who they are and the kinds of things that they studied. Like, I believe that there's a master reader whose responsibility are the planes and they are a githzerai. Oh, nice. Right. Uh, well, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the master readers are for folks who uh, are, you know, haven't yet, yet cracked the book and want to get excited about that? Like, that seems like a, a really fun detail. Uh, the master readers are basically, these are, they're the, think of the, like the, the head of a school of thought or a school of, you know, knowledge, right? Um, although it's not really a school per se, it's a library, but they are uh, pro- professional experts in a specific zone of knowledge. They might have like, let's say if you looked at them as a character, they might have proficiency in, in a great number of knowledges, but in this particular one, they are the known expert. Uh, each one of them are. And I think for that purpose, because I, I believe we have four skills in the game that operate as knowledge-based skills, right? We have arcana, history, religion, and nature. Um, I broke each one of those up into two different subsections and then assigned a master reader to each one of the subsections. Neat. Nice. So it can kind of feel like this is like the uh, professor or the expert that you go to if you have a question around uh, Mm -hmm. nature or or the subset of those, which people can check out when when they see the book. It was clear that you would interact with them, so I wanted to make sure that they had a name and a face and a personality and a, you know, you know what they looked like and all that kind of stuff. I love that. And that's the kind of content we know that DMs really appreciate because if you're going to drop Candlekeep into your own campaign and the characters are going to come here looking for knowledge, they're going to want sort of single points of contact in Candlekeep. Mm-hmm. And having these, having these master readers fleshed out a bit just gives the place a little bit more personality. I like that too because you can also, if you want to use some of the group patron uh, rules from uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, like you can very easily slot one of them into being uh, a patron along the line of the uh, the academy and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, Perkins, we talked about how uh, you used uh, Chris Lindsay's Candlekeep material, sending to contributors and getting them on board, uh, and that was a big part around this book was uh, working with a whole bunch of new. Uh, some new, some experienced uh, writers on this adventure. Can you talk a little bit about how that that idea came about? Oh, absolutely. So if you trace my roots back far enough in the company, uh, you'll discover that I first landed at Wizards as the editor of Dungeon Magazine, which is, or was, a platform for basically presenting short adventures. And so this is very much in that same vein or model. And I felt like I was revisiting familiar, uh, much loved ground in being able to um, uh, basically present a product that was uh, a series of short adventures. But what's wonderful about Candlekeep is that they're all sort of thematically linked uh, to the keep itself and to this idea of books, books driving stories and books being just a kind of a a treasure and a discovery in and of themselves. And so as soon as we hit upon the idea of fleshing out Candlekeep and making that sort of the, 
the centerpiece of this product, then uh, I, I sort of hit upon this idea of what if all the adventures are basically inspired by the discovery of a book? Mm. And at that point, it's like, okay, uh, I want to I wanna reach out to a whole bunch of different people uh, to make sure that the adventures, that the ideas that we get are um, as, ref- you know, uh, sort of reflect just the, the wonder of this place and the, the range of different stories that can come out of books. And so I cast a big net. Uh, I sort of uh, surreptitiously threw out an innocuous tweet, just asking people who some of their favorite writers were. And in, in, the, in the many, many, many responses to that tweet, um, names kept coming up over and over and over again. And I thought, okay, well, um, this might be a great, this, if, if any product is a great place to show off some people that we have not worked with before and give them sort of a chance to do something in an official D&D product, then this is the one, this is it. And so uh, then uh, there was a whole bunch of kind of preparation that had to be made uh, to get people prepared for this endeavor, to make sure that they're given everything that they need to succeed at delivering uh, the adventure that we're asking for in terms of the information that Mr. Lindsay uh, put together in terms of uh, what, what should, what, how, how the book should, how important should the book be in each narrative of the story. And then this other idea of, can we have in each one of these adventures, a mystery, uh, Something, something that when you pick up the book and you start to peruse it, or when you pick up the book and something happens, it immediately prompts the characters to want to go to the next stage to discover what is up with this book or what is this thing that we've discovered in this book. Uh, uh, having that mystery at the core, I think, was very, very important. And then the challenge, of course, is when you have many, many people each working on an adventure, each tied to a book, all sort of based around the same location. How do you make sure that they're all different from each other? Mm. Because the all of the writers are basically working off on their own. They're like satellites in orbit of a planet and you don't want them colliding or, or, or anything like that. You've got to make sure that each of them has an idea that they love, uh, a story that they want to tell, but it's different from everybody else's. And so a lot of my upfront work was looking at their ideas for what their books would be, what mysteries they would present and how the adventure would unfold and just making sure they were all different from each other. And if they weren't, if there was overlap, like somebody had the same hook as another adventure, then finding ways to sort of separate them a bit more or come up with, preserve the intent or the the overarching idea, but maybe have a slightly different approach. So were they, for the most part, did you get a lot of different submissions or did you have to do a lot of that work of tweaking? It was a combination of both. I, I would say about right out of the gate, half of them were were like, okay, we don't have anything else in the book like this at all. This is great. And then the other half were like, okay, these two plots sound almost the same Hmm. Um, by coincidence, often involving different monsters or whatnot, but what the characters are trying to do is basically the same. Hmm. I think we had a couple, for instance, books that shed light on old murder mysteries uh, uh, that then the characters want to go and solve. And so 
uh, we pushed one, we, we kept one, uh, the one that we thought was probably the strongest mystery, and then had the, the writer of the other one sort of take some of the original ideas, but maybe not cast it as a murder mystery, cast it as something else, you know, uh, stuff like that. So about half and half. Okay. And then how, oh, sorry, Greg, go on. You go for it. Well, how how involved did you stay, you personally stay in the evolution of these adventures? Were you their point person or were they assigned to different people Uh, to help them develop? There were two point people on the product, basically uh, me for all things creative. And then my producer, Bill Benham, who basically manages all the behind the scenes stuff. Like, Hey, your, your contract is held up. Bill is the person who can sort of figure out what's going on there, knock on Hasbro's door. But if it's if, if somebody had a creative nut that they needed to crack, for instance, then I'd be the one to try to help them do that. And and uh, my goal was to try to keep those doors open. But the way it the way it largely worked in this pandemic universe we live in is uh, I had them fill out a pitch document where they told me what their book is and what their mystery is and what the adventure is. Once I signed off on that they went off individually and wrote their adventures on spec, which means, you know, they were given a page count or a word count and they had to write up to their maximum or less. And then what they did is uh, uh, we had milestones where like, for instance, they'd turn over a first draft and then I would spend a couple of days reading it, providing comments and then sending it back so that uh, when the, so that they had some feedback as well as some uh, just sort of directional guidance on how we say things or how we word things in a D&D adventure. Uh, they could then digest all of that feedback, make the changes, and then sort of take their adventures to their final drafts. So uh, that feedback piece, I think, was very, very important for them because it gives them a, sense, a clearer sense of what my expectations are. And uh, also it allows, uh, it allowed us to sort of potentially intercept future problems and deal with them early. Um, So that when we got the final adventures, there were no surprises for anybody, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think we've talked to a few of uh, the authors here on Dragon Talk. We talked to Mark Humes and Kelly Lynn D'Angelo last week, uh, as well as all the, the, you know, previews and other interviews that are going out there. Uh, and it was really interesting to hear them say how, you know, if you're a, a DM who is used to performing or just writing notes for yourself, uh, it's a very different animal trying to uh, write an adventure for any DM to pick up and read as well as any, you know, any combination of player characters in there. And so your guidance there must have been invaluable. Yeah, and pretty extensive because uh, adventures are inter- intricate, of course. They have so many moving pieces. Every encounter has its own needs. But it is, it's like writing a technical manual. Uh, you are writing it for somebody else. You're not writing it for yourself. And you don't know how experienced the dungeon master is. And so the way that you phrase things in the adventure, the way that you structure and organize your encounters is hugely impactful on how well they play in the hands of somebody else. Uh, the other big thing that is the lead that I I get involved in, of course, is once the writers have turned over their material, that's just the first third in a way of the, of the process Mm. that comes play testing. The adventures go out. And as soon as an adventure gets a whole bunch more eyeballs on it, Mm -hmm. you discover things. Um, 
things that weren't obvious before or uh, things that the playtesters sort of brush up against and maybe they don't like or maybe they really like. And uh, maybe they maybe they like something so much they want even more of it. And so uh, when you get playtest feedback, it has to be analyzed, of course, and that falls on the lead as well, is to process all the feedback, decide what needs to change, if anything, and how do we make how do we just improve the user interface of the adventure? Because mostly what you get from playtesters is, you know, um, an account of how well their characters performed to get a sense of, you know, is this adventure just too hard or is it too easy? Was it a cakewalk or was it a grind? Um, but you also get a sense of, oh, they, they had trouble just running this encounter. They did not understand it based on what the text was on the page. And so... The challenge is then, okay, well, how do we how do we recast this text to make it so that it's not that big of a problem? Um, because, sense. of course, once the book is out in print, yeah. we're going to have hundreds of thousands of more playtesters. And so the playtesting process is so key to ironing out the wrinkles in the bedsheet uh, before they show up and sit on it. <laughs> um, and, and so... And then, of course, the editors come in and they're doing cleanup um, of the text. They're tightening things up and sort of like tightening screws on the on, on the on the car so it doesn't fall apart when you're driving it around, uh, and 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 sort of beautifying things. And then, of course, the last step of the process is just getting the whole darn thing to fit. Because <laughs> 256 pages yeah. can feel very limiting at certain times, right? And it gets it gets gobbled up super fast, um, and. Uh, that's where uh, it's that's for some, for me, it's the most joyous part of the product because it starts to feel like a real child, like a real thing. Um, it's a real boy. Yeah, exactly. It's not just some hypothetical product. It's now a manifestly real thing. That's, that's yeah. uh, about to be released into the wild. But at the same time, it's absolutely brutal sometimes because I have to, the lead has to make decisions about stuff to cut because the whole adventure is running a column long or a page yeah. long. And it's like, well, how do I lose a page out of a 12-page adventure? Oosh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, before we get, because I think that layout stage is something that I'd love to delve into a little bit more because I think it's super uh, important and also not, you know, may not be uh, a, 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 you know, the, our, our customers and our people playing the game might not really understand exactly how that goes. But uh, Chris Lindsay, I mean, I know you've been a, a, a play tester for, for a long time. Uh, and so I don't know if you have anything to say about like what it was like, perhaps, you know, getting some of this stuff and that, what, what, how you approach being a play tester, because as, as Perkins mentioned, that is, you know, a vital step of, of this process. Well, one of one of the most important things I think as a playtester, particularly because uh, when I am playtesting, I, I, I generally speaking am the dungeon master, and mm. um, uh, I like to get the the book and I or the book or the or the, the adventure that I'm going to run, and I sit down with it, and I don't even worry about the fact that it's not in a finished state. I just start reading it and prepping it like I would any other piece of content, as though it had just been released. Um, and, and, you know, as I'm reading through and, and finding things to, you know, highlight, I need to remember this, I need to remember that, right? And I'm looking for places where, um, to make sure that it makes sense in my head, uh, how an encounter is going to go, right? I, I largely have a very visual imagination. And so 
I can kind of imagine how players will react to something or a number of ways they could react to something. And then what I'm looking for as a dungeon master at that point is, do I have the tools I need inside the adventure to make any one of those possibilities happen? Hmm. Is there, is, 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 or is something missing? Is there a piece of information that, that I need to provide? And then I, of course, I have to make that call. Is that something that I think should be in the product or is that something that I think that I me mean, as a dungeon master, I should be, I should be just worried about that once I actually get the finished product. Um, and then I make the notes and, uh, and run it. And then once you run it, of course, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And in this case, the player characters, because PC stands for actually stands for plot corruptor, not player character. <laughs> um, and, At least and, in Chris Lindsay's games. <laughs> and those play 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 testing. Uh, once you get the actual active play testing going on, uh, uh, first of all, I, I I tend to play test with folks that I know that are extremely patient, mainly because my regular games tend to run at a very fast clip. Um, I keep a really solid pace going through them. I like to move them along like action films, even if it's a exploratory action film, like say an Indiana Jones movie, but I need people who are a little more patient because as we're going through the playtest process, I will be pausing frequently to write down more notes as we're going mm. through and I go, okay, this happened here. And I see where there's another hole here. Right. And then you just put that note in and then you just make sure that all of that uh, you will have to, I will inevitably end up either, printing out another copy or attaching those notes into the form digitally to make sure that uh, whomever I'm passing that playtest feedback back to can understand what it is I'm talking about. Uh, because, you know, notes are notes. <laughs> Communication is key. Yeah. yeah. We try to tell to, we try to ask playtesters to do, and it can be hard for some DMs is playtest the adventure as written because yeah. a lot of DMs will improvise on the spot. Yeah. And that defeats the purpose of the playtest. The playtest is to run exactly what you see on the page. It, you may think it's bad. You may think it's inadequate or, or whatever, but that's what the playtester has to do and then provide feedback on that. Sometimes, occasionally, we'll get playtest feedback, which is basically the equivalent of, I saw the adventure. I didn't like how that encounter was done, so I created this new encounter. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's not... It's like, right. That's that's great. I'm glad you had a fun experience, but we can't use that. So I mean, that's yeah. like to use a, a, a common example in our own times now. That's like going to get like a COVID nineteen test and being like, you know, I didn't like the results, so I took a flu test instead, and that was fine. So I'm good. <laughs> I, don't feel, I don't feel better about that choice. Yeah, running it as written is is the most important thing. So, so is it like play testing is obviously like QA, uh, you know, yeah. quality control, but. Usually when people are doing QA on like a device or a car or some piece of equipment, they're, they're trying to break it um, to see where those pain points are. Do you do that when you're play testing, Chris Lindsay? Are you just deliberately trying to find the holes in this? That's what the PC is, the plot corruptors are I, doing. Or you no, just, I you don't just have let, to. But yeah. you as the DM, <laughs> they, I, they'll I, just, it'll just naturally happen. Generally speaking, I know what I, th- I think I need as I'm getting ready to run an adventure. And then, of course, the players will always do something that like goes beyond what I have considered at that point. If there's a plot hole, the players will always fall into it. Yeah. And, and then I'm like, Oh, I see where there's a problem here. I need this thing. Um, And then that's when you make the note, I need this thing to be in here in this encounter in order for this encounter to work. Um, Yeah. And that's where the strong inevitably come here. Yeah. 
<laughs> and that that's when you give the feedback. That's why, it, to Chris's point, that's why it's so important that you run the adventure as written, because if you just don't start making stuff up, then you don't get the playtest experience at all. Playtesting is, is playtesting is not about having fun. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> work. Although, it's real work. Although, <laughs> although it can be fun. Um, you do need to like, remember what you're, what you're what about, what you're doing. Man. Yeah. Yeah. And because the playtest process happens or rather we get the playtest feedback around the same time that, um, we're starting to block out the book and see how everything fits. A lot of the decisions we make about how to address the playtest feedback is not only driven by what the, the playtesters have identified as a problem, but also how much space we have to actually fix it. Mm. And yeah, and, and Perkins, you mentioned how it's the task of the lead to uh, take all that feedback and absorb it. Um, and that's got to be really a difficult task because it's, I guess some of it might be quantitative, but most of it is qualitative, right? Yeah, we get two kinds of data from playtesters. One is just uh, ratings, you know, just rate rate what you thought of the art, rate what you thought of the maps, rate what you thought of this, blah, 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 blah. But then the other is actual, you know, they're, they're giving us, they're giving us words of data that we have to process. And so what I usually do is I, I skim through it at first and just start flagging things in terms of priority. Uh, so like a, uh, a red hot item or sort of a number one concern, I will flag a certain way uh, and make sure, and that will, I will make sure that that gets addressed um, because if it doesn't, it could seriously impact the playability of the adventure. Uh, and then, then there's sort of a cascading, uh, 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 um, right, lower priority things, you know, exactly, might not get fixed priority. where they just get yeah. cut. Exactly, and uh, it's like this is a nice to have, but not a must have. And there's a lot of subjectivity built in too. Um, for instance, one of the questions we ask is, you know, was the adventure too hard or too easy? And most of the time you get 33% who say it was too hard, 33% who say it was easy, and 33% who say it was perfect. Uh, and so that's it's not useless information. That's good information, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything needs to change. Right. Yeah. That seems yeah. about average. And is it like percentage points where you're like, oh man, this this was 37%. Yes. So maybe it does need a shift because it's yeah. that steals like a lot. Exactly. And we also do um, just a general rating of adventure as a whole um, and sort of use that as a benchmark. You know, if, a, if, a, if an adventure has a whole has a 94% rating or something like something extraordinarily high, then uh, that tells us that I don't have to do a lot of fussing about this. The adventure is basically making people happy. Um, Everything that I have to do is probably on a fairly small scale, like just little little adjustments here. And usually it's things like this adventure doesn't have enough treasure. Um, and so I'm, I'm sprinkling in a little bit more treasure. That's what I'm doing. And oh. then other adventures may not get rated as highly for whatever reason. Um, and, and it could be just a matter of personal taste. And then, then you have to dig in and say, okay, how, what are we going to do to bring this to bring this adventure up. And it's not a, it's not a measure of, you know, the, the writer didn't do their job or anything like that. It's, you know, the playtesters are just identifying their own sort of uh, pain points or moments of crisis as they were playtesting through it. And then uh, me just trying to interpret, okay, how much of this is going to affect change and what are those changes going to be, if any? That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really cool how, 
we've been continuing this idea from D and D next of playtesting and then getting that feedback in a in yeah. a kind of organized way. Uh, and then you know, ever increasing that pool of playtesters so that it feels that there are people coming from so many different, you know, backgrounds and sensibilities that will add, you know, because you know, I mean, I think Chris Lindsay and all of us can attest to like, hey, a person who's been playing Dungeons and Dragons for forty years is going to have a very different uh, attitude when they uh, approach an adventure from someone who just picked it up in the last year or two. And so, having a wide breadth of uh, fans in that playtest pool, I think, has you yes. know improved our products. So yeah, much. and you and you get some wonderful gems too. Like I think not in this product, but in a previous product, there was an NPC whose name was not this, but it sounded a little bit like penis. <laughs> and so um, that would appeal to seven-year-olds. Tester brought that up, and then I'm looking at it and going, "Uh huh, okay, can't, can't unhear that." <laughs> <now>. <laughs> so that that's going to change. Um, <laughs> so you went with uh, dong as the <laughs> wang. Actually, you know, I know somebody that could be a really good play tester. If you need someone to scan a manuscript and see how many words sound like penis, I'm not letting your son. <laughs> <laughs> he oh, works for good. real cheap, or or any boy his age, for that matter. Yeah. That's smart. Um, so, Chris, well, both of you have been writing for a long time and probably have a you know pretty thick skin when it comes to editing and people telling you to you know asking you to make changes and whatnot. But I some of these authors were new, newer, um, maybe haven't gone through the process as extensively as they were going through with this. So, Perkins, did you? Did you help them? Did were you gentle with them? Did you mentor oh, like, them and like was, the like this is how to? In- I was an ogre. <laughs> um, I think with a headband of intellect. Yep. I, <laughs> exactly. The headband. The headband <laughs> of red pen edit. Yeah. My headband of intellect. My 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 baseball hat of intellect. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. I think that. Um, I wasn't, I'm not a, I'm not a very coddling person. I'll just say that right out the gate. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, But I I do know a great deal about uh, putting books together and I know even more about adventure design. And so I saw this as a great opportunity to really sort of give them um, my undivided attention and to pay attention to what they're writing and to give them honest feedback and, not not tough or harsh. It's just, hey, I'm identifying a problem here, and we're going to have to address it. And it was it was my my feedback in the word files that I sent back to them. The feedback that I would give them in email was always very direct but constructive. I think that that's the important thing. It yeah. has to be leading us all down a path of of betterment about making this whole thing better for the end user because that's the that's the whole name of the game. And adventure isn't. You could have the best adventure in the world, but if a DM doesn't want to run it for whatever reason, it's not going to get played. And so um, mostly uh, given given the fact that there were so many submissions, um, given the fact that this is, I'm never actually working on one project at once. It's always five projects at once uh, or four or whatever, that I think I was very mindful about uh not being tough, but being uh, uh, very clear about expectations and um, 
also uh, steering them away from what I knew to be sort of dead ends or uh, potential problem spots just based on the experience that I have. And so I'm sure, I am absolutely sure when they got the word files back from me and they opened them up and they saw the comments in there, their eyeballs probably fell out of their skulls and they had to search around for them on the floor because it was extensive. And it's not to say that it had nothing to do with necessarily the quality of the work. It was just, I was trying to show them just how seriously we at wizards treat our material and um, all of the questions that come up in adventure design that maybe they never even thought of or had occurred to them. Um, And so, uh, and and I apologize to them for that, but I'm, I, I think that, it will serve them well, I hope, uh, in future projects where they're working on D&D material yeah. that they've, they may have picked up three, five, ten, or a hundred things they didn't know before that could serve them well. I would imagine this was a wonderful learning experience for them. Yeah. Chris, say, Lindsay, Chris Lindsay has been on the receiving end of my feedback. Oh, uh, yeah. What was that? As, like? as, a, as a past recipient of Chris's feedback, because uh, uh, we used to you know, have this opportunity to work as freelancers while working at Wizards. And I did extensively work for Chris on a, a, a whole bunch of different projects. And um, I'll be honest that as time went on, uh, the moment when I got that first uh, email back from Chris or any other lead designer for that matter, sometimes it was Chris, sometimes it was other people like Bruce Cordell or whoever, I I started looking forward to it because that was the, the time when I just kind of, I would get up in the morning and I wouldn't look at it until, I, until first thing in the morning. And I would treat that day like that day is like school, right? Because today I'm going to learn something new and, uh, and I'm going to, and I, and I would set, you know, a notebook next to me and I would take notes down. Um, and I had a notebook, a running notebook of things that are like, okay, here's something for this product. And then, uh, and then I had a completely different notebook for, here's something to remember going forward, right? Um, and i worked with a number of lead designers, including Chris, um, uh, and also did editorial work at some point for Kim Mohan when he was still working at Wizards in the building. And um, Chris is a teddy bear compared to Kim. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> but, 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 but Kim actually, even though I decided while, while working with Kim that editing was probably never going to be my bag, I, he, the, the, the degree to which he improved my writing is uh, uh, immense. <laughs> That's really Kim's one of my favorite all-time collaborators, and I'm collaborating him with with him right now. Uh, we've had a great working relationship for years, and I share Chris Lindsay's assessment that anybody on the editorial front is a teddy bear compared to the illustrious Mr. Kim Mohan. <laughs> That's awesome. He is no, no. Don't get me wrong. I actually uh, uh, think of Kim with nothing but fondness in my heart. Uh, yeah. He's a great, yeah. great person. Um, and he's I very pleasant. Very uh, yes, he to, uh, wow. I, it seems very, you know, uh, against his character. Uh, Kim Kim has edited some of the, the biggest names in publishing. Uh, so he has earned his... his, his oh, record. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and well, then I, some. I liked your comparison to a, to a teacher, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Lindsay, because that mm-hmm. just sparked a memory of me. I had one English teacher when I was in freshman uh, in high school who 
was uh, similar, uh, perhaps, to Mr. Perkins here in his direct feedback. And it was tough. Mm -hmm. It was very hard to adjust from, you know, I mean, not like middle school is a walk in the park or anything, but going from, from middle school to high school, it was an adjustment, and he. Yeah. I remember a couple of times he gave me a uh, zero on something because I inadvertently plagiarized uh, when I was doing a research paper, and it was it was it was devastating to me because I was like a you know I identified myself as a as a writer and I you know I know how to do this stuff and then it's a lesson even though it was uh, direct I won't say harsh but it was direct. Um, I've never forgotten it. And in fact, I've been telling my, my daughters as they're learning how to write and, and formulate stuff for school uh, and learning about, oh, getting a bad grade and how the, that feels bad. I've, I've told this example a couple of times over the last year about like, but, you know, I learned. And I, that's the best way to get that type of feedback. And, that is the best mm-hmm. way. Um, and in effect, I'm trying to pay it forward because when I started off as a freelancer, my editors were the editors on the magazines and they were too busy to mince words. Uh, to be frank. And so they gave me, they gave me very direct feedback. And like, like Lindsay, I took notes and I made sure I didn't make the same mistakes twice. Uh, And that was hugely valuable to me and it imprinted on me and sort of uh, at least made me, created the sense in me that that's the kind of editor slash developer I want to be. I want to provide that same kind of support and I think the best kinds of writers are the ones that are can take that feedback. Oh, like there's yeah, like absolutely. I mean, th- this is such a gift that you're giving these people for their future projects. Kind of similar to you, Greg. But, but in college, I was a I minored in writing, so I took a bunch of creative writing and nonfiction classes. One of the things that we had to do was give feedback, and like the the part of the process that is you do it out loud, you do it in front of the whole class, and you have to be direct. Like how you how you form your feedback and how you communicate your feedback to a writer is just as important as how that writer receives it. But you also do have to learn like how do I how how to accept feedback, yeah. and it's a very hard skill for some people to to um, to to work on to to hone. But you know we get, you get you get attached to your words. The first couple of times can be painful. But yeah. you just, you know, I mean, you have to give yourself a chance. You, you read it, you put it down, you walk away, you deal with your feelings, you come back, you look at it again, yeah. and then try and just, now you just try and break it down and see, okay, how can I make myself better with this, yeah. right? And there are going to be people who just, for whatever reason, don't respond, not necessarily to the direct feedback we're talking about, but other cues might just be like, hey, I didn't like that working relationship for whatever reason. And that's why there is that bond I think between editor and author is because when you find a collaboration that works, you know, and it clicks, it does. And, you know, it's also okay to be like, Hey, that collaboration didn't work for me because of whatever reason. Uh, And I think that, you know, by providing this experience, you know, people will uh, kind of understand that and get to it. But it's, it's really great to look under the hood here and see how the process of building this book goes. So I wanted to, to, to go back to that last third you were talking about, uh, Mr. Perkins, about like, you know, once it's already being laid out and things are being cut and, and, and decisions, the master decider needs to, to uh, figure out what goes in the book and what doesn't. What's, what's that process like? So um, uh, by the time the book is being assembled in InDesign, uh, the art order has already been done. And in fact, the artists are actually working on the maps and the illustrations to go in the book. So uh, 
when you create a file that the text is going to go in, you can all you can start blocking out the art. It's basically leaving space for all the art and map elements while you're laying out the text. Um, one of the interesting things that happens when you import a file from Word into InDesign is you realize almost instantly whether a writer has applied their styles correctly or not. Because if they haven't styled their Word file like they've been asked to, and you drag it into InDesign, you get some real garbage. Um, (laughs) In terms of the text is not laying out properly, it's all in the wrong fonts, all the bold and italics are gone um, and have to be reinserted manually. Uh, Paragraphs, breaks may not be where you intended, bulleted lists will be gone, tables will just cause InDesign to cough up a lung. (laughs) <laughs> but if you followed if you followed the instructions that you were given and you formatted your word file properly and you applied styles correctly, it's a painless procedure and the text flows in and everything that's bold is bold and everything that's italics is italics. So one of the first hurdles uh, to overcome is uh, in laying out the book is just making sure that everything is styled correctly when it hadn't been previously. And uh, um, we were very lucky on Candlekeep Mysteries that uh, that didn't come up very often, that the, the text transferred over. But then, of course, once it's in InDesign, um, you're, you're looking at it on a, or I, rather I as the lead, I'm looking at it on a sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph way. How is this, where does this column end on the page? Should, the, should these last two lines of this column be pushed up to the next page? And how might, do I just adjust columns? Do I add more text to get rid of the ragged bottoms on the pages? Oh, this box text is enormously long, um, much longer than I thought it was. No, but no DM's going to want to read this. How do I shorten this? Uh, oh, this heading hierarchy is all messed up. This H1 header should be an H2 header, and all the headers under it should be H3 headers. Uh, <sighs> it becomes a very microcosmic uh, thing where you're, you're just dealing with a hundred thousand little tiny decisions. Boop this here, boop this down here. Oh, this is a bad break. It shouldn't break across the page this way. Oh, I got to get this table to fit on the page. It's two lines too long. How do I do that? Uh, I I can just trim this entry down by a couple lines or I can delete this entry entirely and boop, uh, reflow the table. And so you just go through this exercise until you get to the end of each adventure. And then at the end of each adventure, you've got, by the time you get to it, it all in the end, you've got the makings of a book. But then um, you have to, uh, if there's any lingering playtest feedback, as I mentioned previously, you know, I now have to sit down and figure, okay, the playtesters had a problem with this encounter. It was too easy. They all said it was too easy. How are we going to make this harder? But this adventure is a quarter of a page or a quarter of a page too long. So I'm going to cut this part of this encounter entirely um, because it wasn't that fun anyway, or it was, it was, you know, it's not the, it's not the most magical part of that encounter. And I'm going to sculpt some new text that's going to fit into this amount of space. That's going to solve all these playtester problems. I'll write that text out and then I will, uh, once I'm done, I'll make sure that another editor has a chance to see it because God knows what I just wrote, uh, right? <laughs> so, hey, Kim, would you mind reading this text to see if I did not insert, you know, uh, a bad comma or um, uh, the, type the same word twice in a row or some weird thing? Um, nobody's Nobody's infallible. And that's the kind of 
exercise or process that happens during the book building. It's a very um, bit by bit, section by section crafting of the page and how the page looks like. And then you have to look at the page as a complete thing and say, is this a beautiful page? You know, uh, when it's next to the page beside it, does the art, is the art in the right place? Uh, is the text that the art pertains to even remotely close to it? And if it's not, how do I move? Where do I put that art? Uh, and what does that do to the flow of the text? Oh, I hate that. I hate making a change to something to get it to flow just right. And then realizing afterward, oh my God, the art's in the wrong place. I now have to take that whole big chunk of that page and move it somewhere else. And suddenly everything has reflowed and I have to go through all those decisions again about oh how are laying out. Um, live that and sounds learn. like a hoot. <laughs> it is the most fun part of the process because as I said before, it feels like a real book all of a sudden. It's got all the pieces in place and it's a, it's a beautiful thing to behold. A lot of people's work is represented uh, on that page. And uh, it is an honor to be able to um, get it all to fit and to get it to sing. That I think really it cool. sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everybody, but, but in, in, in design dweebs like me and Jeremy Crawford and, yeah. him, and think it's heaven on earth. I could see that. I, I love that there's an old video from uh, when uh, Amy and Kate were putting together, uh, I forget what, what, what book, book it was, um, but it's the three of them doing all of that together, moving around art and how the graphic design works. And you're right, it's just there's something magical about like taking all these different parts and uh, uh, bringing them into one whole creative work. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I, you know, I think, I'm glad you talked that through because I don't think a lot of people real, no. realize that like, oh, the writing is just, as you said, one third. And then yeah. it goes through these different phases and things can get changed and altered and, and, and made better, hopefully, uh, through, through all of those, those processes. Uh, one of the biggest decisions that came really late in the process was we got to the end of the last adventure, Xanthoria, Tony's adventure, uh, which might be my favorite adventure in the book, by the way. Um, not, no favorites, but I really like that adventure. Uh, <laughs> we, were, we had one blank page, um, page, page two, whatever, 256, 224 was blank because um, Xanthoria ended up being a little bit tighter than uh, in its final form um, than we expected. And so uh, one of the, I had to sleep on it because I didn't know what, what the heck am I going to do with this last one page. I don't have any one page adventures. I can't fit any more content in this book. And I don't want to just pad something out, uh, particularly since it would throw a bunch of stuff off. And so the idea of using that last page for contributor bios mm. was, was a very late minute decision. Um, and, uh, that I made. And the reason I chose that over something else is I think that in an anthology product where you have so many voices, particularly, Voices that people in the community have never may have never heard of before, uh, and and uh, it's it's nice to know or to remind the fans that human beings made this. And who are these human beings? Uh, you know, and uh, it was it was a nice email to send to the writers and the editors and just say, hey, we have this space. I'd like to get a short bio from you. Here's an example. 
And I wrote the goofiest ass bio example I could think of, but <laughs> completely nonsensical uh, to sort of inspire them to be silly if they wanted to. The, the temptation to just use that bio was almost overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will admit I was, it was the end of the process, toward the end of the process. So I was a bit punchy and freewheeling by then. Uh, <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> but it's a, it's a nice little grace note to be able to just, you know, type that up and send it off and just say, you know, okay, I, I am now, people are going to know me in this book by this, this short little thing. And they're going to know a little bit about me than just simply, you know, the work in question. And I think uh, in, in a future anthology, I could see doing the same thing. I think that's a, that's a nice little feature. It, it, it takes up a little bit amount of space, but it's worth it. And I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative that the, uh, the editors that you mentioned who, who, were so integral to all the uh, D&D books, but this one oh, in particular are, oh, are included in there. Yeah. yeah. Editing, editing is, is the, their editors are often the unsung heroes of a book. Um, their ability to sort of sculpt text and, and really make it sing, uh, polish that diamond as it were, um, often goes unheralded, but they, they do as much work as the writers do uh, to get the, the final product into a state that DMs, you know, want to use it. We love editors. editors are One of the best. coolest things about, I think, the products are no different than any product in any other industry. It takes an entire team of people working together to make the final, you know, output of, of those efforts happen. Um, it's, we're no one part for that matter, not always working together, but they're working. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, they may not be working like right next to each other, right? But they're, but it's all they're all up in totally the... different stages of the process. And... They've all done their part. And yes. once it gets to the end, right, you know, no one person can say they did all the things because so many other people came along and contributed to that to make the whole thing do what it's supposed to do. Right. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we don't put um, credits on our covers is because you cannot boil a book down to a single person or yeah. a handful of people. If you've seen our credits page, there's a lot of influences uh, on on every one of our products, and it would be it would be a, a, a misrepresentation to say that this book or any other book we work on is one person's baby. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we're, as we're winding down here, like, uh, the contributors or the, uh, the original authors of these, of these adventures, uh, have had their names, uh, on the adventure pages, uh, themselves. And that is, I think to my knowledge, the first time that's been done in, in fifth edition, but yeah. that was, that was true in dungeon and dragon magazines back and in that, the day. That was another decision I made that was inspired largely by my time on dungeon. Uh, mm-hmm. when we used to do that, we used to credit the, 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 the writers at the beginning of each adventure. I think in a product like this, where every piece is meant to sort of stand as its own little beautiful jewel, that there are people that we can sort of call out uh, and, and, and put up front there. And, uh, and I think that's, I think that's great uh, because a question we often get asked in some of our other products, like our big adventures is uh, I see everybody's name in the credit but I really don't know who did what. And I'd like to thank so-and-so for their contribution, but I don't even know what their contribution is. Uh, this sort of helps get around that because these are very clear break pieces. Whereas something like Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, the writers are much more entwined. 
and it's a lot harder to separate one person. It's not a case of like one person wrote the entirety of one chapter or anything like that. It doesn't have the clean breaks mm. that a book like this does. And so here it seemed very intuitive to do that kind of thing. And, uh, but we'll see, we'll see how people like it. Um, and if, if they like it, if they think this is a great way uh, of, 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 of presenting that information, we'll continue it. And I, I, last question here. Uh, I, I, I've, we haven't really kind of highlighted this, but you wrote an adventure uh, in this, Chris Perkins, right? I did. Um, this was uh, the adventure, of Book of the Raven. I wrote as a model for the others to use. So it was written before oh. anybody else started. Basically, I was writing at the same time Chris was working on his Candlekeep section. And because oh. I, I thought it would be easier for the writers to see, here's what kind of what I'm expecting. I'm not expecting exactly this, but here's what an, here's what one of our adventures looks like in the template I'm giving you. Here's how long the adventure is supposed to be. And, you know, you can look at it and see formats and things like that and kind of see how I took a book and the mystery in it and sort of did the adventure. So it was written as a sample um, originally. And I left it in the book because it sort of hit, it was a... It, we needed a level three adventure um, that was the right, that was basically going to fill the right amount of space. And so I just left it in there. Um, you, you were selling it really hard. There. You're like, it's so good. Is- <laughs> 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 like, yeah, we just needed, it was filler. Uh, basically. It was just it was a filler. sample. Totally Cranked it uh, out. Uh, I love no, that it, even like your sample writing makes it into a finished book. <laughs> To an official I, book. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I must admit, I am. There is a pang of embarrassment. Like I don't. I, I could have put. There was. I probably could have put something else in there. It's not. It's not a vanity thing for me. But I thought that the adventure. Um, it has a very simple structure. Hey, you find a treasure map in a book. Mm. Uh, which is kind of it's so it, it's sort of easy to run in that regard, but it also shows it also showed that you don't need to center your adventure around combat. This is more of a mystery exploration Scooby Doo type uh, cool. romp than a go murder the monsters in their dungeon type adventure. And so I, I think it's I think it's got a character and is is worthy of being seen. Um, Nice. Well, yeah. I can't wait for people to to check it out. I mean, like I said, it's available now in stores. Uh, if you've been watching this in video, you've been seeing uh, Mr. Perkins pick up the alternate cover, uh, which looks very awesome. Oh, uh, shiny. Yeah, so good. And, so uh, good. <laughs> Show us the back. Show us the back. Yeah. 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 This Beholder, this beholder um, is in one of the adventures. Um, oh, nice. So it's in an adventure titled The Curious Tale of Wisteria Vale. So, Chris Lindsay, is that is there a copy of Candlekeep Mysteries in Candlekeep? Yes, it looks just like this. Yeah. If yes. I brought that book, Why could not? I get in? Yeah, let's see. Let's <laughs> no, there. no, you would not. Why? They are- seriously, seriously, when we did the when I did the cover art order for this book and handed it off to Kate Irwin, my my sort of um, request for her was let's make this look like a book that you could find in Candlekeep's art. Nice. And it does. That's one of my favorites. Um, I know we're running a little long, but we do have a listener question that I just wanted, I want to, to get to. Do it. Really quick for both of you, your opinion. Uh, this this is from Mofo, T-Y, 
86 mofo. on Twitter. I want to hear what Mofo has. Hey, Mofo. Mofo TY 86. Okay, what are your top five subclasses that would work best with these adventures? Oh, Maybe top three, top two? That's a that's a hard question to parse because every adventure is so different. Yeah. Um, How about yours? How about your adventure? Oh, uh, subclasses? Goodness. Sort of started with this question, huh? <laughs> <laughs> or let them think about it for a little bit ahead of time. Um, Should have sent them to you in advance. I would say for, for my adventure specifically, I don't recommend Assassin. Arcane Trickster is great. Thief is great. Uh, warlocks will have a lot of fun. Wizards will have, any of the wizard schools folks will have a lot of fun, but um, I would say it would be helpful to be uh, maybe a transmuter. Um, beyond mm. that, what about an inquisitive? Since it's a oh. uh, investigative thing, right? Yeah, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to go uh, bring a little Eberron into your into your Forgotten Realms, mix that chocolate and peanut butter together. I would say <laughs> yeah, that would work wonderfully. Um, <laughs> there's basically you're just kind of stomping around a haunted house or a thing that feels like it might be a haunted house. Uh, so whatever whatever subclasses are good for spooky house infiltration. All right. Play and wise, do you think that's true, Chris Lindsay? Uh, maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the beauty of putting this together is, right, you know, you have to kind of optimize it for the widest breadth yeah. of player characters it, and imaginations that will be thrown at it, right? You know, if I were going to suggest anything, it would be pretty much uh, choose any bard subclass and you're probably fine. That's true of all D&D, though. <laughs> and? That's very crit. And very this is why I play answer. bards. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I would say, like, and again, uh, to reinforce the point that every adventure is so different, like, I think Artificer, any Artificer would have a ton of fun in Amy's adventure, Candle mm. Deconstruction, which is such a wacky, quirky, Amy Vorpal-like uh, experience. Um, uh, and if you were better yet, a multi-class artificer bard. Oh my god! <laughs> Selling it hard. He's a lobby lobbyist no, for bard over no here. Bard artificer. Yeah, there you go. Gnome figures prominently in her adventure. Um, there's a gnome in her adventure named Stonky, which is a great name. Well, that is a good name. And then Stonky. when you get in there. And you need to know how to do something to get the thing done. You have no excuse. Oh God! Stop oh jeez! That's just going to end the podcast right there. Thank you, wow. everyone. Wow. Uh, <laughs> we're we're done. We're canceled. No. <laughs> in all in all honesty, thank you so much for the two of you for coming on and talking through uh, this thanks. because there is uh, a wealth of information in here. I think it's a really fun way for uh, dungeon masters to. You know, pull something off the shelf and maybe run a one shot or yeah. or, or, or uh, a, a short um, adventure with your group that's established, or for you know, uh, meeting up in convention or online play. Uh, yeah, it's super great. So thank you, and thank you to all the contributors who have uh, and uh, who have who have sent stuff in for this book. And uh, we apologize for Chris Lindsay and Chris Perkins' jokes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no apology. <laughs> we can't. We can't be safe. <laughs> Man. 
I talked a little bit uh, at the top how we were, you know, not sure what it would be like going back into the office. But I miss seeing the faces of Chris Perkins and Chris Lindsay and especially yeah. hearing uh, yes. Chris Lindsay's laugh. I was thinking that, too. I want to hear the the hands rubbing together and the big booming laugh. <laughs> I also love when he was talking about players corrupting plots and not doing things that he wants because I've been a player in his game and I hope I've done that to him. You certainly have, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, but good stuff. I hope you're all uh, excited about picking up uh, Candlekeep Mysteries. As we said, it's in stores now. There is a link uh, in the show notes if you would like to uh, grab it uh, through whatever service you feel is best. Uh, and, of course, you can only get the alternate cover through game stores. So uh, definitely hope you are picking that up, and it is amazing. I actually haven't seen a physical copy yet. I don't have one uh, here. Um, but man, seeing Chris Perkins open it up and, and show it off uh, on camera was was like the next best thing. It it looks it looks good on camera, mm-hmm. and I know it looks good in person, but yeah. And they say it's the camera adds ten pounds, but not to books. It adds ten pages. Ten pages it adds a signature. <laughs> <laughs> but that book was looking good. Yep, 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 yep. Can't wait. Can't wait for that. Sweet. Yeah, so definitely check it out. Uh, I want to hear about people running one-shots using the adventures in there. Uh, If you're stringing them together or, you know, running them as individuals, yeah, give us a shout-out. You can reach me at Greg Tito on Twitter and underscore Tito uh, at uh, Instagram. That's Greg underscore Tito. I keep shortening that, but I'm realizing that there might be people listening and being like, what? No, underscore Tito doesn't even go to you. Yeah, You, you need to make sure. We yeah. don't know who you're driving people to. Um, I'm Shelly Moo on, on Instagram and, and Twitter. So Sweet. Yeah. Let's you can chat. follow Dungeons and Dragons uh, at wizards underscore DND or, uh, you know, the Facebooks, dungeonsanddragons.com. I suggest you download Dragon Plus right now, right now onto your phone. There's so much wonderful stuff there, including previews and interviews with many of the contributors to Candlekeep Mysteries. And, uh, you know, looking forward to uh, Van Richten. So great stuff there. I, oh. I don't think I've said this out loud, but I'm really hoping I get to write another short story uh, in the issues to come. So do hopefully know, me s- saying know? this out loud will make it happen. I don't know. Do, I mean, I feel like you have a connection there. I do. I do have a connection. I feel like you could maybe kill his character in your D&D Ooh. game. That's already unless, unless. Oh, yeah. He's not actually that bothered by that. No. It doesn't really it, work. Exactly. So yeah. it's uh, it's good that he was able to. He's like, I got another another character I can I can throw out. Yeah, yeah. They're entering a whole new phase though. Now we're gonna do maybe a, a, a hex crawl uh, going forward. What? What do you this. mean? I know, right? Well, kind of like an overland wilderness uh, where they've been a little bit more, um, you know, dungeon uh, focused. Now they might be a little bit more wilderness. So oh, fun! A new phase as they enter. You should use that cool uh, wilderness kit for Dungeon Masters. I am thinking of it, for sure. Yeah, it's been open and I've been perusing it, for sure. Very nice. Oh, you know what what else people should do? What's that? Um, The the D&D newsletter. We do have a newsletter. Sign up. Sign up for it, because I think you might start getting some cool stuff for being a subscriber. So just go to DungeonsAndDragons.com and there's a link right there on that main page that says... Sign up for the newsletter. Yeah, and do and it. We'll be delivering hot takes to you uh, on the regular with that yes. handy newsletter. Uh, yeah. So yeah, tons of fun stuff planned for mm. that. Yep, and yeah, just a good place to you know 
get your news. If, you, if you're finding it hard to keep up with everything, just get that <laughs> newsletter. Right? That's all the news that's fit to print. Yep. I think that's yep, the yep, motto yep. of the newsletter, right? Yep. If it will be now. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, speaking uh, of all the news that's fit to print, uh, we, and by we, I mean Drunky Two Shoes and Daryl Two Shoes, are in get my a dye. tavern in Waterdeep. And there is a patron in the corner who is reading the Waterdeep Wazoo. That is all the news that's fit to print uh, in Waterdeep. Uh, as well as a somewhat surly barkeep uh, as you drink some ale and waited for Daryl's contact to come in. And he did. It was a very, I want to say, portly man that looks uh, like he's wearing clothes that are very expensive, or at least were at some point, um, with a little bit frayed on the edges, you know, some fur on the collar, uh, a little bit of... uh, gold medal and uh, chains and filigree around the edges of his tunic and his doublet. Um, and uh, he introduces himself as Mert to you. Mert the moneylender. Right, right. And for those of you who don't know, Chris Lindsay, uh, who we just interviewed, played Mert the moneylender during the Stream of Many Eyes in 2018. Uh, when we that was great. built out the city of Waterdeep in a studio in... Los Angeles, uh, and that is the apparition that is, well, not apparition, that's the person that's in front of you uh, right now. Uh, pleased to make your acquaintance. Uh, pleased and to you meet are? you. Uh, I am Drunky Two-Shoes, and this is my brother, Daryl. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I have been called that many a time, but it was not uh, out of respect, I believe. <clears throat> and he, he kind of burps and tries to uh, nice. hide it under a cough. Okay. Um. Daryl, I don't know what's supposed to happen here. Uh, and Daryl says, well, this is my uh, contact that I was telling you about. Okay. Uh, Mert, is it all right if we speak here? Uh, and uh, Mert kind of looks around and uh, says, yeah, that's fine. But uh, is there a seat anywhere? My dogs are barking. And, uh, you know, the two, the, you know, he gestures to a table and you guys okay. kind of sit up there. There's no booth. He's like, oh, there's no cushions. What the hell? He's kind of struggling as he's trying to sit down. You know, he's oh. a large, large person. Uh, uh, but he finally does. The, the chair creaks a little bit, uh, but he sits there opposite uh, uh, two chairs. Okay. I want to do an insight check on him. Okay. Oh, gosh. 16. Sixteen. He looks, uh, you know, interested in talking to you. Uh, he's a little bit nonplussed by you being there. I think is what you get from that insight roll. I think he was expecting to speak to Daryl uh, alone. Oh, okay. Uh, but he is trying to be magnanimous, and he's gesturing to the two chairs in front. Of him. Please sit. Bring your bring your drinks. I'm sure the barkeep won't mind. Okay. Uh, and so uh, Daryl says, "Yeah, you know," and you guys sit down. Uh, and uh, Mert says, I would love that report um, that you said you had, Daryl. And uh, Daryl says, well, I was tracking uh, the, car, you know, the, the target, as, as you asked me to do, uh, but we got, we got waylaid, uh, and uh, unfortunately, um, uh, Soong is not able to be with us uh, anymore. Uh, or at least I don't know where he is. But I was put into this boat 
Uh, and actually, I was rescued by my sister, uh, Drunky here. And Mert kind of purses his lips and he says, mm, what do you mean? Oh, this is very unfortunate. I don't know if these doppelgangers uh, are aware that we are aware of them. Mm. All right. Uh, and he seems to make a quick decision. Uh, and he says, I need you uh, to deliver this uh, to the high ward. Uh, there's a place there. Uh, they will uh, take you in and we'll get more information uh, in the meantime. And uh, your next assignment will come then. And uh, he says to you, as he's kind of saying that kind of, you know, not necessarily privately, to, but to Daryl, and he says to, to you, Drunky, mm. uh, are you, tell me about yourself. Oh, um, well, I, I am Daryl's sister, Littermate. Uh, I've lived a, a life of, of adventure, um, very good with a bow, and um, spent all the last several years looking for my brother. I, I didn't mm. know it. Yeah. Oh, that's very concise. Uh, I have one question for you. Yes. If you were traveling on a road and a, a group of brigands uh, were holding a, uh, a farmer at sword point and uh, attempting to steal not only his money, but his uh, uh, family, what would you do? Oh, I would stop and, and I would help him. Excellent. I, I, I couldn't let that happen. And you, you seem kind of just like looking over. Oh, and, uh, uh, you know, kind of sizing you up as you're saying that. And especially the quickness with which you replied in that way. And he said, ah, well then welcome to the Harper's. Huh? You may go with uh, with uh, with Daryl to our safe house in the High Ward. Thank you. The I trust Harper. you know what the Harpers are. Yes, yes, I do. That's well, Daryl or Drunky talking. Yeah, he says. Well, I'm sure your brother will fill you in. Oh, of course. Goodbye. Bye. Enjoy. Bye. Have Thank fun storming the castle. Bye, bye, Mister Moneylender. Bye. <laughs> My friends call me Mert. Goodbye, Mert. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll see what happens uh, next. The hell, Daryl. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if I could tell you about me joining up with a secret society. Okay. Well, I guess I'm in the secret society now. Let's go to the safe house. Dun, dun, dun. Woo! All right. We'll okay. find out what happens at a Harper safe house next time. Sounds fun. Unless you get attacked along the way. Nope. We'll see. I mean, I got a pocket full of arrows. I'm ready. Kryptonite! <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back. Dragon Dog! Woo!